From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While basketball generally dominates the conversation in early March, the performance of Anthony Richardson at the NFL Combine was the talk of the sports world last week, driving some GMs and scouts to a different kind of madness. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry and the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly, for a roundtable chat about AR's record-smashing measurements the start of spring practice back in Gainesville, a new tight ends coach ascending from within the organization, baseball's raucous weekend against Miami, basketball's pledge to go out strong in Nashville, and the wisdom of potential college football rule changes in the PAT. Then, recently crowned SEC Defensive Player of the Year and all-conference performer Colin Castleton reflects on his time in Gainesville, how he's grown over the course of his career, and what lies ahead. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. We are firing up the roundtable with FloridaGators.com senior writers, Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Uh, and of course, the voice of the Gators, Sean Kelly. And guys, uh, a lot of things to get to this week. Let's start with the one that always creeps back in when we get to the uh, the end of February, beginning of March, and that is the start of spring football. Obviously, it's been a, a little out of whack because of the coaching changes happening just a few days before it started. Uh, but Scott, Early returns from spring football. What did we see out there in, in weekend number one? Oh, well, there's only one practice. And, you know, obviously most people are wanting to watch Graham Mertz, the new quarterback, and see what he did. I mean, he made some good passes. And, you know, it looks like a guy that the most impressive thing about him, he's just – he's got an aura of leadership about him. You can tell that this guy's kind of a natural leader. And uh, he already has the command of the – the team, at least from an offensive standpoint, but we'll see how he does. I mean, it's it's really too early to know much about how that competition between him and Jack Miller is going to shake out. But I think we can all say that Graham Wirtz coming in with his credentials is is probably the leader in the clubhouse. He was brought here for a reason. So, uh, and other than that, you know, it, it's always just a day. They're not doing a lot out there uh, early, uh, but. You see, you're seeing a lot of new players. I mean, 27 new scholarship guys uh, were at that practice on Saturday. There's just a lot of people to learn. A lot, you know, you see some talent there, uh, but it's going to take some time for those guys to really establish themselves and and kind of uh, learn the system and get acclimated to the program. But I think that's what spring ball is all about. You know, it, it's a a different sense this year at Florida with uh, Billy Napier going into his second year. It feels definitely more like his program, his players, and with the roster turnover, that was never more evident than just getting out there and seeing them. And then went through a walk through uh, what Monday, and uh, 
saw a couple familiar faces, uh, Anthony Richardson and Jervon Dexter back out there after their big weekend in the, the Combine. So just uh, that time of year, guys, where uh, you're just trying to figure out who looks good, who doesn't, and where they may fit into the big picture. I talked to Ricky Pearsall. He was at the Gators basketball game on Saturday, and it was great catching up with Ricky. You know, obviously the first part of the conversation was his decision to come back, which he's very pleased that he's done. Um, he said there's a new vibe around the program right now in a, in a, in a positive way in that there is a, a new sense of leadership um, and a very um, healthy one at that. And also the fact that they're rolling into the situation, knowing a lot more about each other and about Billy Napier and the system in which they play. So Pearsall, you know, was not quick to say it, but felt that things are much better off than they were a year ago or when he joined the program and that he thinks the Gators are, are much better off 12 months removed from basically the start of the Billy Napier area. So that was great to hear. And, you know, Jason Marshall said after practice on Saturday that, yes, there's a new defensive coordinator in town, but it's not like they're trying to learn a whole new language, that all the terminology and most of the basic concepts are carrying over from, from Tony. And, and there are obvious reasons there. The new DC it comes off of that tree and, and so there's a lot of similarities. So maybe the new change of defensive coordinator is not as jarring as one would think in this early stage of the program, uh, the upcoming season. So all those are positive notes. And obviously a tight ends coach is in place now. Uh, I would imagine wide receivers coach is coming up next. So this will all fall into place. And as Scott mentioned, it's, it's not sporadic, but it's, it's certainly not regular season mode. In fact, they'll be taking a week off during spring break. So there'll be some split in the time here. That all leads up to the orange and blue game on the 13th. Sean, you mentioned a new tight ends coach. Let's talk about that. I guess uh, what all organizations hope to do, promote from within. So uh, a familiar face getting elevated to that post. What do we know about the uh, the Gators' new tight end coach? Yeah, Callaway was in the program already a year. He was more serving on the defensive side of the football than anything else, but has offensive background, different stints at Alabama, LSU, uh, most recently came from the NFL where he was an offensive analyst and assistant with the, with the Giants. And so the, the background is there and the familiarity with him having been in the building is also there. And just in talking to several people around the program, they were super pleased that he got the job and felt that it was a great promotion from within. And 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 that also, you know, I think is is of note when it comes to the, the positive vibe around around the program right now. And so um, it's like you said, it's great that you can find that talent from within your own walls. And uh, I think it helps make the transition a little bit more smooth. So that's what's happening with the Gators that are that are still on campus. Uh, one that's not anymore is Anthony Richardson. You mentioned Ms. Secchio coming back around the program. Uh, maybe the, the biggest story from the combine or, or maybe just because that's the uh, that's the, the news that I get served on Twitter. Um, but certainly made a ton of waves. If there was ever a prospect that was built for the combine, it would certainly seem to be Anthony Richardson. Uh, and this is a guy who I think everybody who follows the program knows, you know, had a lot of trouble with consistency and some basic things that, that he wasn't great at. And yet some people think he can now be the number one overall pick. I mean, what do we make of, of Richardson's performance at the combine and, and what it means for, uh, for the, the former Gator? He's built for the combine. I'm not really surprised. Um, maybe I was a little surprised at best ever vertical, best ever broad jump by any quarterback at the combine ever, which was 
awfully impressive. You know, I'm glad that he made all the throws. Uh, if you notice the measurables, it looks like he's put on a little more weight. I would imagine that's more muscle weight for Anthony Richardson. And from all reports, he knocked it out of the park with his interviews with all the different franchises. On Monday, I did an interview with a radio station in Seattle. They have a certain eye on Anthony Richardson, and I think that's really kind of where the good fit is, that kind of a situation. Could Anthony Richardson land with a team where he doesn't have to be the guy right of way? Uh, and I think that's still part of the conversation, whether it be the combine or prior, is that Richardson still in a lot of ways is pretty raw. And if you look at the body of work, it isn't a whole lot of starts. It's barely double digits at this point. So if Richardson can be drafted like like a, by like a Seattle or, or some other team that can bring him along a little bit, it's a win for Anthony and probably for that franchise too. Um, wish him nothing but the best. And pretty cool to see him excel basically in Indianapolis. I, I'm like Sean. I wasn't surprised at all, but it's always kind of fascinating to see a player of uh, Anthony Richardson's ability uh kind of go into the combine microscope and and excel and then suddenly he, he did you know mushroom into a huge story uh, over the weekend probably the biggest story in sports I mean because of those numbers he put up and I saw uh, some analytics report where they were rating the raw athletic scores of quarterbacks through the combine's history and Anthony Richardson has now surpassed his hero Cam Newton at number one, his his score was one point higher than uh, Cam Newton back when he was coming out of Auburn uh, in 2011 combine. And uh, I don't think Gator fans or any of us on this podcast, as you guys have mentioned, are surprised at all in the least that he was going to do well up there. Uh, Athey is he's got everything physically that you need, but we all know that you know running a 40 or doing a broad jump is a lot different than having two seconds to throw and having a linebacker breathing down your back who's just as athletic as you almost. So it's going to be a, it's going to be fascinating to see where he goes because at this point, you know, number one seems to be a possibility or number 10. You know, he's going to go, I think, in the top 10 if, if we're looking at all the uh, prognosticators and everything. But I saw Todd Mache had put out something this morning about what are the real concerns about Anthony. It's nothing different than what we – we haven't heard, you know, his accuracy, uh, commanding a locker room, uh, stuff of that nature. But physically, uh, he's certainly aced the test at the combine. The combine's a decathlon. I mean, he's perfectly uh, <laughs> set up for that. I've, I've, I went to 10 combines during my time covering the NFL, and I saw, saw a lot of workout warriors, and they brought him in, and people gushed over him. GMs gushed over him. Um, it's funny, I saw on uh, ESPN, Dan or- Orlovsky was gushing about Anthony Richardson and talking about the concerns of his accuracy. You know, th- he doesn't understand them because he, he doesn't think he doesn't think he's going to be an, uh, an inaccurate thrower. You know, we we saw a full season of Anthony Richardson. We, we, we know he has accuracy issues. Uh, we, you know, we, we, I mean, at the same time, he, if he goes to the right place uh, and he's got receivers – Better receivers than here. I mean, I I go back to I go back to Kyle Trask, and how good he was uh, when he had weapons around him, and how he took a significant step back when Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony and uh, who else was it? Trevon Grimes uh, weren't there to throw to in that um, Cotton Bowl, I believe it was against Oklahoma. Um, 
you know, let's, let's put some players around Anthony Richardson and see what happens for him. But uh, in this process of being evaluated as a prospect, you declare, then you train for the combine for these specific things. So for all that, he gets rave reviews. I mean, you do have to prepare and you do have to perform there. And he's done that. Now the next wave is the individual kind of things where he's going to bounce around. And, of course, uh, guys will come in and talk to him. Of course, his pro day here, um, which from our, Scott, and our, Scott and I heard in the meeting yesterday, it's going to be like a, 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 a mini kind of uh, Indianapolis. There's going to mm-hmm. be quite a few teams that come here to show up for that. And that's good. And, and he did a service to his teammates also. Um, he's going to get a bunch of extra uh, teams here to watch some of his teammates uh, who played last year. Um, some guys that probably uh, second chance guys that, that maybe weren't in the league that have hung around or that will be at Gainesville. That'll get a second chance to uh, get a second look at, at some teams and, and maybe get a chance to uh, jumpstart um, some, some time for them. So uh, outstanding for him, outstanding for the Gators uh, got a lot of uh, positive shine on the program relative to that. Moving on to baseball, it was a, a rowdy weekend at Conjuring Ballpark, uh, a, a record-setting weekend there as well for Florida and Miami. Uh, and, and for those that, that love the old Florida-Miami rivalry, I think we can say definitively it is alive and well based on what went on throughout that series, especially the, the way that it ended. Uh, what were, the, what were your, your takeaways from the, from the, the diamond this weekend? Um, I, I, I do believe that Florida, in their first measurement weekend of the season, passed with flying colors, maybe except for one. The bullpen breakdown on Saturday in game two of the series is the only blemish. But your run ruled the Canes on Sunday. Uh, you got a great starting effort from Sproat, Caglione, Waldrop. All three of those starters excelled against much better competition than they faced so far. And this lineup continues to prove that it's one of the best offenses in the country right now. White Langford ends up being the SEC Player of the Week as a result. Um, there are tough outs up and down this lineup. And the atmosphere was was conference-like and then some. I mean, the crowds were, were fantastic. Uh, the weather didn't cooperate much on Saturday. But it was just a great atmosphere to kind of launch you into this next phase of the schedule. It's the middle of a 13-game homestand right now. And a team like the Gators may have one question mark left, and that's still how to bridge – things from the that dynamic starting trio into their bullpen. Uh, Neely was under the weather most of the weekend. I'm not going to read too much into his performance, um, which wasn't all that bad. I mean, he had to be lifted on Sunday. But by and large, this is a very successful weekend for the Gators. And this will only continue to roll with two games against Florida Atlantic this week, a weekend series against the Siena squad that's really, really stumbling along right now. But then – you're set. You're ready to go for the start of conference play. I can't believe it's basically two weeks away at this point. Uh, one other note, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan now, I think, and I hope I have the number right, is is 39-17 and 17 against Miami. And mm-hmm. with the two wins and the one loss, the, these two teams now are basically even in the all-time series. Uh, wins, losses, and there is one tie in there. But it's pretty cool. It's a it's – a, it's a, it's a rivalry that's played out for 44 consecutive years. Um, Miami will still have a great season in the ACC, uh, but at the same time, Florida showed they're just a, a bit ahead of the Hurricanes right now, and and they're for real. Yeah, I thought it was probably uh, just in terms of atmosphere and uh, rivalry. Uh, I thought the, the weekend probably was the highlight of Condren Ballpark's young history so far. 
Uh, you know, they got almost 23,000 out for the three games. Uh, that was a program record. I think uh, 8,000 on Friday or a little over 8,000 second all time. And it just it just felt like a, a huge series. Like Sean said, it felt very much like a, a conference series uh, with something on the line. And, and the players uh, on both sides were, you know, a little chippy all weekend. There was high-intensity uh, baseball being played. And uh, Wyatt Linkford, as Sean mentioned, was SEC Player of the Week. And Brandon Sproke, great start. Jack Caglione, great start. Kirsten Waldrop, what, 14 strikeouts on Saturday, even though the bullpen did the uh, stumble. I think, you know, you look at the, the team guys after almost a quarter of the regular season. It's clear that the offense, I think, is going to be okay, although they'll slump here and there. Uh, they've got a heck of a lineup, and not only a, a good everyday lineup, a, a deep lineup. And then uh, the starting pitching is, uh, I think, going to be fine. You know, they're averaging, what, well, 14 point two Ks as a trio per nine innings. I mean, they have overpowering stuff, and uh, it just all goes back to can they, you know, get that bullpen going, and I, th I think they, they'll be fine there in time, but they have struggled some. They've got the arms, and I thought Kate Fisher, the left-handed freshman, took a big step over the weekend. Uh, he's he's kind of emerging as, as someone they can really rely on, and I think uh, just by from what I've seen so far, he's going to he stays healthy. He'll go down as one of these Florida pitchers where we're used to seeing by the end of his career. So anyway, just overall, a pretty good weekend. Other than that, that Saturday uh, bullpen situation. You know, it's it's funny that uh, Scott and Adam, you both you mentioned the chippiness involved in the series. One other intangible I like too, actually, with this ball club is that they have a well placed swagger to them. There was a moment early in that game on Friday. Uh, when a home run was hit, and we're, I mean a mammoth home run that started Miami scoring, there was a bat flip involved uh, by Yo-Yo, and uh, BT Ryapel, the catcher, wasn't having it and stood right back up to him, and that kind of set the tone for the Gators for the weekend, and that plays into some leadership too. Ryapel and then Josh Rivera. I mean, these guys are are in charge of that well-placed swagger, and um, and they're driving things from a leadership standpoint with this ball club right now, and everybody seems to be in lockstep with those two guys. So that's another thing that I think will serve this this team well when they get into the heat of conference play and then obviously the postseason. Moving on to basketball, uh, as this is going to be released, the Gators will be just hours away from competing in the SEC tournament. Obviously, a strong finish to the regular season against LSU, as you noted, Chris. Um, significant to get to 500 in the SEC, especially given some of the, the challenges they had and injuries, obviously, to Colin Castleton. Um, may, this may seem to be kind of a weird question, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. You'd like to win any tournament you play in, sure. Is Florida likely to win the SEC tournament? I think it's fair to say no. So my question would be going into this, what what are the realistic goals for this team? What what could they take from Nashville that's going to be a success outside of winning the whole thing, which I think we would all agree is not likely to happen? Well, I would think the takeaway right now is uh, spin ahead. Um, you know, realistically, without Colin Castleton, it's going to be it's going to be hard to make any kind of significant run, <laughs> not just in the SEC tournament, but even in something like the like the NIT. But the phrase was used by Todd when Collins' uh, injury came down, that they had to reinvent themselves. 
And what I've seen over the last uh, couple games, not necessarily since Colin's been out, but uh, initially when when Colin when Colin was first out, it was it was it was difficult for this team on a couple fronts. But you know, they hung in there. They hung in there against Kentucky on the road. Um, a couple of things are pretty good. Um, excuse me, not Kentucky and Kentucky at home. Excuse me. Um, but they've gone from a post team to a perimeter team almost in a week. And, you know, Sean's on the mics and he's seen that. We, we haven't seen this kind of shooting this season. Um, and it's basically been two guys. And you've seen what Riley Kugel has become uh, over the last month. And you've seen what Will Richards, I've kind of thought, was going to be early on in the season. Now Will Richards, Will Richards has become a, a more aggressive player. And I'm not talking about ball attacking. I'm talking about um, seeking shots when he doesn't have the ball and what he's been able to accomplish the last couple games, 24 points up at Georgia last week on the road, 18 uh, um, here uh, in the, in the season finale against LSU uh, uh, 50% from three in those two games. Um, You know, I'm talking about him right now at 85%, I think, or 88% from the free throw line for the season. Uh, He's becoming more aggressive and and it's, it's something he had to be. Now, I speak of general aggressiveness. Riley Kugel is a guy who the Gators have not had here, a guy who can go get his own shot. Now, I say that knowing what Trey Mann became, a first-team All-SEC player, first-round draft pick, a guy who's being productive in the NBA right now for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Um, Trey Mann took two seasons to get there. Uh, Kayvon Allen was a guy who could go get his own shot, okay? Kayvon Allen was here four years, scored 1,700 points. He's the sixth leading scorer in program history. But he would never embrace the challenge from the coaches here to be the most aggressive player you can be. He was also, I think, number one or two all-time in free throw shooting percentage. But he, he just – there would be games where he was 0 for 3 with zero points. It just drove the coaches crazy because of what he could have been and what and, and his potential – he just would not embrace that uh, aggressive mentality that they asked of him. Riley Kugan had a problem with that. And he can go get a shot anytime he wants to. I'm not talking a drive to the basket. Yeah, he can do that, maybe get to the free throw line, maybe finish. But he can go get one above the three-point line with these NBA kind of moves with stuff going behind his back and step backs. And we hadn't seen that this year, and he's evolved into that player. This is a guy who didn't even play in the first SEC game of the season. The Gators are going to the SEC tournament. He's the best player on the team right now. Okay. He's averaged 18.3 points, I think, over the last, uh, during this run of eight straight double figure games. The last four games, he's averaged 21 points a game. Um, he is a big time, big time basketball player uh, and who's going to have some decisions to make this offseason relative to, I'm sure he'll have thoughts in his mind about dipping his toe in the NBA waters. In this NIL situation, there'll be people trying to backdoor him and what have you. But uh, he's got a stage right now that um, I don't know how long the stage is going to be at the SEC tournament. Mississippi State, if the Gators are fortunate enough to beat a pretty good Mississippi State team that's won 20 games this year, uh, they get Alabama in the uh, on Friday. So we don't know what's going to happen there. But um, you asked me what this what's expected of the SEC tournament or, or what to make of the season. I think what's happened – the last week with this team, the Gators have two very, very good players to build around next season. Um, and Todd Golden, you know, this 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 time last year, 
there was this huge question mark of Colin Castleton. He was gone. Everyone knew he was gone. Um, what was this team going to look like in a, in another transfer portal rebuild under Mike White? Well, now assuming these two guys are back last year, next year uh, Todd Golden has uh, two serious pieces from which to build around. Now he's got to go find some other guys, particularly in the front court. Alec Kugel is a star in the making. Chris pretty much said everything that needs to be said about that. I love the fact that he'll face Mississippi State. Do your homework in the first round of this tournament, but he has become special. I think he's a year away or maybe even less than a year away from really being high on a lot of NBA draft boards. Not quite this cycle coming up, but soon thereafter uh, in that sense. And even Alex Fudge, who has his offensive deficiencies at that end of the floor, has found a way to kind of be a defensive presence in this smaller lineup. And so I think that is not the, the salve over the Castleton situation, but it certainly helps in watching the guards now run this offense differently. Instead of everything going through the high post, it is perimeter-oriented, as, as Chris mentioned. And, man, it is, it is something to watch these shots go in. Double-digit made threes in these wins. I mean, I, that seems to be the high – it means to be the mean line. That, you know, ten threes. Ten threes and you're in good shape to win a basketball game if you're the Florida Gators right now. Um, I th- You know, albeit against two bottom-tier teams, the two wins last week to end the regular season – is not only a lift for the for the moments, but I think it's a lift and a bounce into the offseason, too, in some ways. And so I'm very happy for them. In fact, after the Vanderbilt loss, I thought, mm, this could be it. I mean, uh, human behavior would tell us that uh, likely here that the Gators might just pack this in and get ready for the offseason. Um, Myron Jones told us after the Georgia win, I guess it was, at Georgia, which, by the way, that's eight straight. Just want to make sure we've mentioned that as many times as possible. But <laughs> I asked Myron about that, and he said, we basically just said, we're not going out like this. And I love that mentality, especially going to this tournament. Um, I will forever hang on to hope. I realize what Chris has said about what lies in front of Florida right now up in Nashville. But, shoot, here's me last night watching the Sun Belt Championship. And it's the eighth seed, South Alabama, giving Louisiana all they could want in the championship game of that tournament. Is the Sun Belt the SEC? No, I get it. Is South Alabama in a similar situation as Florida? No, not even close. But this time of year, crazy can happen. And let's say you do win on Thursday against Mississippi State. Will turmoil that surrounds Alabama's program finally catch up with them? Will they be looking ahead to the NCAA tournament? I mean, just – Funky things happen this time of year. You kind of never know. But I like this week's Gators better than I do 10 days ago. That's for sure. And I think this this little chapter in the season story speaks to the whole body of work by Todd Golden and his staff. What they've done with this roster and developing a young guy like Kugel, Will Richard coming along as a transfer, um, it, it says a lot about where this thing could be going down the road. Yeah, and, and if I can pile on, like he said that about – he mentioned Todd and the staff – He's had to remake the team uh, a couple times on the fly. They figured out early on in the season when they were getting destroyed that they had to they had to become a defensive team and they had to rework some things relative to stopping a, a just word he used any number of times atrocious, horrendous transition defense. And they became that defense uh, team with Colin in the pivot. And you lose Colin, and then you have to remake him again. Reinvent is the word uh, he used. So um, they get. They definitely get some credit for that. And the fact that they have that not only have they been able to remake the team, but haven't lost the team. Okay. And there is something to that in the locker room. 
And credit, like Sean said, to a guy like Myron Jones, a 15 senior, a guy like Kyle Lofton, who's been really, really steady uh, the last couple of weeks. Not spectacular, but very, very steady. Those two guys in, uh, in, in keeping this team together. And credit them, too, for being able to step back and let these two young guys become the focal point of this team. That speaks to the staff, and that speaks to uh, – the goal of, of, of these older guys to go out with some kind of a positive experience at the end. I want to move on now to our PAT, and it is about some changes that are probably coming to college football. I'm not sure if, if many people have followed this, but the NCAA Rules Committee has been meeting during the offseason, as they always do, and they're trying to address essentially the same thing that baseball is, Major League Baseball. How do we make these games shorter? How do we make this how do we make the ballooning size of games go the other direction? Uh, and the biggest thing they've identified is changing the rules to where the clock does not stop after a first down. I think the one exception would be inside of two minutes of each half, second quarter and the fourth quarter. Uh, but this is one of those things where I, th- I think we've seen this more and more where, where college football is trying to closer mirror what the NFL does. Uh, the NFL is obviously a model of a very consistent TV product. The window is pretty solid. It's right about three hours. College football games on average this past year were about three hours, 21 minutes. So my question to you guys is, first of all, do you think this is a real problem that needs to be addressed? And number two, do you do you agree with the strategy of changing things to more mirror the NFL to accomplish that, or should college stay distinct and, and have some key differences? Well, Adam, I mean, I understand what you're trying to do. Uh, as we, like you mentioned, we've seen in baseball, uh, these games, these entertainment windows, I think it just reflects our society. I mean, people have less and less attention spans, and also there are so many more options. So, you know, it's like going to a movie. When I'm choosing a movie, maybe to watch on Netflix or something, I'm more likely to choose one that's an hour and 45 minutes oftentimes than one that's three hours and 21 minutes. And so football or college football is obviously one of America's most popular sports. It's different. It's live entertainment. It's really the thing that I, I think live sports is really what most people are watching live TV is traditional live TV. as We know it. Uh, most of the, the other stuff is being streamed now on demand, but you still have to keep these uh, live windows within, I think, people's attention span. And, you know, if you can do that, I think, in three, three and a half hours instead of three, forty-five, or four hours, you have a better chance uh, of doing that. And so I don't mind necessarily the changes as long as they don't, you know, the, the two minutes, I like the fact that they're keeping uh, the clock stopped in the two-minute warning like they do in the NFL. But I think most fans – or seem like from what I've gathered, they don't have a big problem with this. But I do think that what you said is true. I mean, college football is feeling more and more like the NFL on some levels. And uh, hopefully they won't shorten – or hopefully they won't lengthen the goalposts to still create some uh, difference, you know. And, and just to clarify, they're not talking about adding a two-minute warning. What I meant there is the clock would still stop after a first down inside of two minutes of each half. I don't believe yeah. there's a two-minute warning being discussed. Um, and But before the panel continues, the other side of this too that I forgot to mention is the one of the competition committees is looking at the fact that you're talking about an, on average, I think 20 to 25 more plays per game, which they think is also adding to injuries in college. 
um, then you could say, well, what about the the new playoff and adding extra games? And that's a great question for people that that don't want to be handcuffed by logic. Um, but you could certainly <laughs> there's there's a bigger thing here at play. But there's these are some changes that are happening here. The NFL added added a, a game a week or a year ago. So, they did. That is true. Uh, so 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 that, I always thought that was kind of a, a self self defeating kind of argument. We're only adding an extra game or two for about four, five, six teams True. at the end of the day. Uh, so the argument about, oh, we've added all these games of the playoffs, that's ridiculous. The, the teams that are going to be in the playoffs already would be going to a bowl game, an extra game anyway. And so if they get eliminated in round one of the playoffs, there you go. There's the same number of games that they've played all along. So out of the 115-ish or so Division One teams, we're talking about – really four that will be affected by extra games. Yes, I do like the player safety aspect. Uh, again, anytime that you can, just like when the insurance company asks you how far you drive to work, mm-hmm. your rate is based on your um, being exposed to <laughs> to something. And so from an injury standpoint, if this eliminates snaps, I, I'm all for it. Uh, I think, aren't we all trying to develop players for the next level? Isn't that what we just talked about at the start of this conversation with the combine and And so if we're getting offenses and defense more prepared to what they're going to see at the next level with regard to clock management or dealing with the clock not stopping, in this case, after the ball is spot and the chains are set, I'm okay with that too. And, yes, flow is important, I think. And college football has become awfully choppy. The other rule that's likely to pass here is no more consecutive timeouts, i.e., in the case of icing a kicker, call a timeout, ice the kicker, call another timeout to freeze them more. I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. So I'm in favor of this. I I don't think it changes the fabric of the game. I think it helps it in development, player safety, takes away some of the choppiness. And, oh, by the way, one more thing. Do we really need a 20-minute halftime show? Uh, Forgive me, all band lovers and (laughs) and other festivities at halftime, but – the NFL seems to do just fine with a 15-minute halftime. Maybe we can go to that, too, and you save five minutes there as well. So, um, yeah, I'm fine with all this, to tell you the truth. And and probably there's more to come. I don't know what, how much more to come, but there will be ways to, to make this, A, more TV-friendly, more fan-friendly, and player safety, too. Man, you've got to think that the lobbyists for the marching band industry are coming after Sean Hard following that statement. Uh, you can send all your comments to Chris Harry. I'm sure he'll filter them <laughs> for me. The band will come marching into my neighborhood. I, I love the band. I think it's special to college football, and I think we can still do a halftime band show and 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 whatever else you want to do in 15 minutes, as opposed to 20. I, yeah, that's just that's a kind of a silly thing that I'm throwing in there. But if we're if we're having this conversation, if we've got, we've got to shave all this time off, well, here's five more minutes for you. So. When, and they're worried about, they specifically point to the game has gotten five minutes longer on average in the last couple of seasons. And there's five minutes you just solved right there. You're welcome. My answer will be very short. Why, why not start making it more like the NFL? Because we're headed toward a salary cap for college football players. So might as well start line, lining it up. Saturdays and Sundays of professional football, right? Sadly, I don't know that many people would disagree with you, given the uh, the current state of things. But that's a that's a good little that's a good coda to put on there. Uh, well, guys, thank you for for bringing it today. We had a lot of covered a lot of ground, uh, and there's still a lot going on around Garrett Nation. So we appreciate you keeping everybody informed, and we will talk to you next week. See you, Adam.
When Colin Castleton arrived at Florida as a junior, he had very little to his name as a bench player for two seasons at Michigan where he averaged a couple of points and just single-digit minutes per game. Fast forward to today, and as one of the most successful transfers in program history, he'll leave as a decorated Gator great and fan favorite who will be remembered for years to come. Recently named first-team all-conference and the SEC Defensive Player of the Year, his season and career at Florida ended suddenly with a freak hand injury against Ole Miss in mid-February. And we began our retrospective conversation by going back to that pivotal moment. Yeah, I mean, I just remember uh, setting like a ball screen and I was rolling to the basket and I was going to like duck my defender in just to get like better positioning in the post. Um, and like as I swung my arm, um, like the guy who's guarding me like kind of swung his arm down and then as I was just trying to go up with the duck in like to show my hands uh it kind of like just hit it lightly like very light and as soon as he hit it though I knew I broke it so like right when it got hit I felt it and I was just like damn I definitely knew it was broken so I just started grabbing my wrist because the pain was like very very bad so in that moment if you you know it's broken you know what that means I mean, what what is that like? Does it all hit you at once that like that was the end of your career as a Gator or does that come after the fact? I mean, definitely probably after the fact, a couple of days after that or, you know, like the first game we played, like me not getting like introduced into the starting lineup or like little things like that definitely just like stick out. Um, but, you know, you just got to keep moving forward. You got to keep a positive mindset. That's the biggest thing I've been trying to do is just make sure um, I keep a positive mindset every day and just pour all my like effort into the team and like, you know, the guys that were behind me who weren't playing as many minutes. I'm um, just teaching them things that I know because I can be like a coach in that aspect. But that's the biggest thing for me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, too, because a lot of times from adversity, um, you can grow in ways that, that you don't expect. So I'm, I'm curious, over the course of the last couple of weeks, how much do you think that you've grown as a teammate and as someone who can support others in ways that maybe you didn't know before because that, that wasn't your role? Yeah, um, a lot. I feel like um, I was becoming a great leader on the court and while I was playing, um, understanding you know how to talk to guys while I'm on the court and you know being able to just tell them where they need to be on the court. As now, it's a little bit, different with like I guess you could say like the coaching role in a way but just being a leader off the court now because um I'm not really playing with them so I see things differently though um like I'll, I'll watch Jason run down the court five times and like just pinpoint certain things that I saw that he can do better or Alex just watching them individually just so I can teach them things when it comes to the huddle because you know I see a lot of things I've played a lot of basketball so like I you know know the game pretty well so being able just to teach them little things that helps me while I'm on the court I just try to help them out with that. So I've definitely grown a lot in that aspect. So over the, the course of the last few weeks, you're not watching the games on TV because you're there, but obviously those cameras are constantly going to you on the bench and t- talking about your story and what it means overall. Uh, and, you, and you always have energy and you're always excited. Um, where where does that come from? I, know, I mean, you're an, you're an energetic guy, but being able to to pour it into like that funnel was that something that was that was that easy like the second you were out or is it taking a little bit to get into the right mindset for that i mean honestly i would i would be lying if i said it was super easy because i'm so wired to just play the game i love and being able to just play for florida just puts me in a different you know mindset mentally going every game so knowing that i'm not playing um the you know the playing aspect in my mind is obviously gone there like you said i gotta just 
pour into the role of being a great teammate, having energy. And that's something that has stemmed from, um, you know, when I was younger and just being taught that from my parents and just knowing um, things may not always go your way and you got to be able to just transition quickly and be positive about everything. So that's what I try to do during this process. When looking at the the big picture of, of your career, which is quite a career you've had at two different schools and obviously spanning a good period of time, going back to Michigan, all the way when you were a freshman, um, there's two questions here. It's, it's the off the court and on the court. We'll start with on the court. In what ways do you think you've grown the most since you started your college basketball career as a freshman? I want to say it's been a long time, so it's been five years, <laughs> but there's a lot of things I've been able to work on and get better at. Um Defense, that's probably the biggest thing for me. Overall, my whole career. I mean, I've, I've always been a shot blocker to my who, like, blocking shots. But I feel like in college over the years, I've been able to, like, love defense and really understand, like, when I watch NBA games or when I watch all the college games I watch, like, I love watching defense. And, like, I've always just been strung to, you know, like, watching great shot blockers over the years and just watching, like, a big player of mine that I grew up watching was, like, Kevin Garnett and just his energy and passion on the defense side of the ball just carried over to offense. So that's what I've always tried to mimic my game after is being able to just have that passion on the defensive end. So that's the biggest thing that probably I've been able to get better at or learn the most over my years. And what about off the court? How do you think you've grown the most over the uh, the, the five years you just mentioned? I'd say off the court, um, just being, you know, a great locker room guy. I feel like when you're younger in college and you're a freshman, maybe sophomore, like you don't understand how much that really means to teammates, being a leader or somebody they can lean on and talk to whenever they have questions, which leads to being on the court. But off the court, I'll just say being a leader, being somebody that guys can, you know, ask questions whenever they need help or um, lean on me for whatever they need. I always like to ask people this at, at the end of the road. Um, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a freshman, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself that would be the most helpful for you? Um, I'd say coming into college, uh, if I was telling myself, the biggest thing would probably be just knowing time management, you know, like understanding that in high school, it's nowhere the same um, when it comes to managing your time and understanding that you got to go to class, you got to go to practice, um, you got to go to film sessions, you got to go to study halls, you got to go do your homework, you got to eat at the right times, you got to eat three to four or five meals a day. Um, there's just like a lot of stuff that goes into the daily process so like telling you know a younger self of mine that didn't know anything at all when I was going into college like I knew of it but you don't realize it till you get there they're like yeah this is how it works so that's probably what I would tell myself looking at the the course of your entire career especially looking at the numbers I mean there's just it's like it's like a, a totally different story from your time at Michigan to your time at Florida um, yeah. outside of playing time which obviously helps what do you think changed so drastically when you got to Gainesville that that clicked to the degree that you've had the the career that you've had as a Gator? Um, I'd say the biggest thing for me um, after transferring was probably just getting back to my normal self with confidence on the court. I feel like my my personality never wavers, never changes. I always stay the same level headed, outgoing person. I try my hardest to do that, no matter what I'm going through or the situation or minutes, whatever that case may be, which helped me get to where I'm at, Florida, but. I feel like the biggest thing for me was just um, my confidence on the court, like believing in myself more and understanding, like, you know, my ability um, on the court. And then obviously um, Florida played the biggest part in that. Like if I didn't transfer here, it wouldn't have happened. So um, I gave all the credit to like when I transferred here, the coaches that recruited me, Coach White was a big part of that when I transferred. So 
um, and then transitioning to Coach Golden. He's given me all the confidence in the world this year. He just feeds that to me. So really, Florida is the biggest thing. You know, a lot of guys in your situation, I mean, you could have you could have left if there wasn't a coaching change. I don't think anybody would have thought anything of it. Um, but to come back with a coaching change, with all of the newness that's involved with that, I mean, that, that takes a special kind of person. What do you remember about that decision and, and what ultimately pushed you to do it? Because most people would have probably made the, uh, the other choice. I mean, I had options to figure out if I was going to want to go to the next level or transfer to other schools, but... Obviously, I got surgery, so that made it, you know, 100% that I was going to go back to college for another year. So then, like you said, I had the decision to stay here or go to, like, any other school in the country probably. But honestly, like, I got a good relationship with Coach Golden. Um, when he got the job, he was on me about it. And we just had great communication with my family. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, the, one of the biggest parts, too, is just, like I said, it's Florida. Like, I love this school all my heart. Um, like, it's, it's where I'm from. Like, this is my state. This is where I've been my whole life, basically, besides a couple of years. So uh, it's definitely something that means a lot to me. So, I mean, I could have went to other schools. Um, you know, you never know. But, like, that wasn't my mindset. As soon as my option was come back to Florida or go to the next level. So it wasn't like I'm going to go somewhere else. And um, I feel like that just shows a lot about this school, um, everything that I've been able to accomplish here. And I didn't want to go somewhere else and just end that, you know, like, I was trying to build a legacy here. So that was the biggest thing for me and just loving the school. You talked about all the, the confidence that Coach Golden has given you. Uh, I'm curious what it's been like playing for him compared to Coach White. Like, how, is, how has it been different? I don't know if it's about if the analytics play a big part in that, but what have been some of the biggest differences from playing in, in one system to the other? I mean, there's always differences when it comes to new coaches. Um, so obviously every coach has their own scheme of things. They have their own you know, way of going about an offense or way of going about a defense. So they obviously have their differences, of course, just like every coach I've played for. It's been, I want to say, four head coaches now in five wow. years. So <laughs> every, I've, every single coach has different, you know, the way they go about practice, the way they go about film, the way they go about, you know, certain situations in the game, time management, different things like that. There's a lot of stuff that goes into coaching. So, I mean, there's obviously going to be a differences. I don't know, like, if there's like one, two, three, four differences, but there's many differences that they have. Um, but I've just enjoyed this year with Coach Golden. Um, I enjoyed my last two years with Coach White. And, you know, I just feel like they're great human beings. And that's the biggest thing that sticks out to me when it comes to coaching is just, you know, who they are as a person and then, you know, basketball after that. One thing I've learned over the years is that athletes love consistency. And four head coaches in five years is not consistency. So, no. I mean, having that level of, of adaptability, is that something that you, you feel like you've already had? Or did you have to develop that because of the situations you were in? Um, I feel like I've been able to learn that before when I was younger. I've been able to learn different situations in my life where I've been able to just quickly change or quickly think or flip my mindset into a positive state, like I talked about earlier. So... For me, it was obviously going through that because not a lot of players go through that. Four coaches in five years is a good amount. But being able just to have a great personality and connect with coaches differently, um, they all have their different type of um, flow with things like I talked about. So just being able to adjust, that's life. You're going to have different people come and go, um, whether that's you're in the business world, anything. It's always going to be people coming and going. So being able to adjust to how they coach and just being yourself is the biggest thing. You know, if you're, if you act like yourself and you have a high character, everything else will take care of itself. But 
definitely was a challenge at first when I was younger. Coaches play a big role, I know, in, in this, but in terms of mentorship and terms of people who've kind of helped you, guide you along the way, who have been the most important mentors in your basketball career? I would say just my biggest mentors would be, I mean, my mom, she's always been there. She's the number one with everything in my life. So I have to say my mom probably because she's just helped me with everything. She didn't know much about basketball when I was younger, younger, but over the years of me playing it, she's been able to learn and just understand everything about it off the court, on the court. And she helps guide me with just everything. So she's probably number one in my mentor for sure. And then I just have a couple other people that, you know, have been around and helped me throughout the years. My AU coach, um, all, a couple of my AU coaches have, have helped out with me when I transferred and things like that. And then uh, my high school coach, Coach Eddie Miller, and our athletic director. Those are probably the biggest people. They've just helped um, build a good foundation around me, and I listen to them, and they're honest. As you've grown in uh, in stature in terms of where you are in the program, I know you've become a big leader as well. Um, which players do you think you've had the biggest impact on during your time at Florida? Um, I feel like, I mean, it's also been a little different because when I got here, it's not like I had, um, you know, a guy, a guy with me besides Jason and Isles, which I've been around them since my junior year. But there's always this transfer portal and there's always a fluctuating amount of players. So, uh, definitely does it is harder with the transfer portal to build a, a bond as much as if you're with the team for four years or three years. But being able to get close with the guys quicker is something you have to adjust to. So I feel like somebody that I've probably um, this year, you know, probably probably be Alex Shimshik, being able just to talk to him and seeing his growth from when he got here. That's probably the biggest thing for me. So just especially right now going to the SEC tournament and we have another game versus LSU. Every single game he's asking questions. He's, you know, calling like what do you do when this happens or what do you whatever? Because every time I see him playing or like every time I see him practicing it, I think of myself when I was a freshman, like mm -hmm. I didn't even get put in a position that he's in when I was a freshman. And I like continuously ask myself, Oh, what would I have done in this position? And he's doing a great job. So probably him this year. This is kind of a hard question to answer because it's, it's big, right? But when you think about your career and the moments and the memories, which ones stand out the most? What are some, if, if you had to say, like, what are the, your top three best memories? What comes to mind? That's a hard one. I told uh, you, I, I warned you, I told you it was hard. Yeah. I would say one of the memories for sure was beating Auburn at home when they were number two. That game was crazy. That's like one of the craziest games I've ever played in. Like, the arena was so loud. I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. Like, it was like a dream playing in that game. So we beat Auburn number two. That's definitely top three. I got two more. I would probably say, then I'll probably say the Tennessee game this year. That's mm -hmm. definitely top three. That's up there for sure. One more. That's the best three. It's a hard question, but <laughs> um, so we have Auburn, Tennessee. Uh, my junior year, going to the tournament, being uh, winning that Virginia Tech game. That would probably be the one, the top three for me in Florida. A lot of those moments happen at home. Uh, I'm curious the relationship that you've built with the Rowdies. I mean, you've got you've got legendary status, and and you've only been here for half your career. What has yeah. that meant to you, having that that energy and that connection with the with the the Rowdies? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, they're they bring it every single game. Ever since I got to Florida, like I didn't really know how loud they were, like how into it they are with basketball. And then once I started, you know, playing and doing pretty well, and just the energy I play with, it kind of just like a connection. So, you know, whenever I make a big play or do something, you know, I'm looking at them and getting the crowd you know, pretty hyped up. So it's something I love doing. You know, I love playing in, in our arena and, you know, the fans we have are amazing. 
Um, they support us through thick and thin. So especially the Rowdies, because they're they're there every single game. It doesn't matter what game it is. So um, their support is awesome, and it's been great, like, playing in front of them. What have been the most challenging road environments to play in? Which games you still remember, just whether it's the heckling or the noise or the intensity, which ones stand out? Man, there's a lot. But <laughs> I would say the biggest one for me that I'll always probably tell people will probably be Auburn last year, my senior year, my fourth year. Auburn on the road was crazy because there were two in the country. So when we went there, there were two or like four, but it's crazy because it's smaller, but it's so loud and they fit everybody in there. Then I'll probably have to say like Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Tennessee is pretty crazy, but there's like, I'm not gonna lie. There's like five places that I'm like, wow, it's great. It gets crazy. Arkansas gets really loud. Kentucky gets really loud. Like there's like SEC road environments are, are very, very loud and just have great fan bases to be honest. You mentioned some great wins that are memorable. I'm curious, what are some of the stories from off the court that you'll remember most? What What's something that makes you laugh when you think about it that most fans probably didn't even know happened? Um, Family friendly, of course. Family friendly. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, I would just say there's a lot of things, like just being around the guys on my team over the years. There's just a bunch of jokesters, a bunch of comedians, funny videos of us joking around, like mimic, the joking around, mimicking each other. Or, um, there's just a lot, to be honest. I can't really pinpoint one exact moment, but like, we just have a great time. Um, we spend all of our time together, basically. Like, we're traveling mm-hmm. every we in the gym every single day. We might get an off day once a week. So, you're still coming to the gym and getting therapy. So, you see these guys every single day. And we're just, you know, we're always high spirits. We try our hardest, even through the the lows and the highs. Like, things may have not gone our way 100% this year. But everybody still has a great um, attitude and mindset. And that just shows you who the type of people are that are here at the school and just support staff, everybody. I'm as positive about, you know, everything. So there's a lot of moments, to be honest with you. I can't really pinpoint one. Funniest teammate you've had. If you needed a laugh, which guy could you always count on to crack you up? Funniest teammate right now would probably be Will. This year, for sure. It changes year to year who the funniest guy is? Yeah, yeah, probably. Especially with the transfer portal. So like, you know, got like six or seven new guys. You're probably going to get a new comedian this year. So just somebody who's funny every year, probably Will. Couple of final things for you. In terms of getting ready for what's next, I imagine that's kind of changed with the injury, but what does that plan look like? What's the timeline when you look at the NBA, everything that comes next? What is that like right now for you? You know, making sure I focus on the team right now, being able to just um, help out all the other guys, the younger guys, whenever they need anything, um, being able just to be a leader, like you said, that's the biggest thing for me right now. I'm not focused on. Um, what I have right away next when the season ends, um, just taking it day by day, um, focusing on my hand, making sure that I get to 100 percent and then I'll go with the process after that. But it'll it'll be making sure we finish the season strong, you know, being the best leader I can um, important into my teammates and whatever they need. Then it'll be getting ready for the next level um, throughout the summer and pre-draft stuff like that. So once I get my hand fully healthy. Um, I'll start getting back to working out and just going at it with basketball every single day, all day, and get ready for the next level. Final question for you. And again, we're having this conversation before senior day. So by the time people hear this, it will have already happened. Um, but w- what's this going to be like for you on, on Saturday, going out there, getting that recognition, knowing it's the last time in the O-Dome? And obviously, it's a little tougher because you're not able to play. But yeah. what what emotions does that bring to you when, when you think about that? It's gonna be. A, I don't even know to be honest. It's gonna be crazy. It's gonna be. It's gonna be a lot of emotions. Um, I haven't really thought about it because I'm trying to just get there. But 
Um, I don't want to overthink it. I don't want to, you know, think too much about it, but it's going to be awesome. You know, just being recognized um, for all the effort I've put here. Um, I love the school, like I already told you. So um, it's going to be amazing. Um, I just hope the fans that followed us and followed me just enjoyed watching me play and watching my teammates play. So that's the biggest thing for me. But definitely, like I said, it's going to be really, really emotional, but I love the school. So. Well, Khan, you've become a, a Gator legend in a very short period of time. Thank you for all that you've given to Gator Nation, and we wish you a lot of luck moving forward. Thank you. Appreciate that. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.